All Souls Church, Pastor Harvey here. We're uh, in the book of Genesis, and we're continuing in the second series that we have in the book of Genesis called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've been looking at the life of Abraham for the couple of, last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue with that today, uh, specifically Abraham's relationship with God and how it influences and impacts us even today. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and read. We're going to read Genesis chapter 15. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we look into this text and we see how Abraham trusted you, Teach us to trust you as well. Teach us to hear your voice and trust your word as we live this life. So Lord, uh, lead us now by the power of the Holy Spirit and instruct each person. May each person grow in faith and may they see the Lord Jesus in the text. And we pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, um, when God says he will, he will. Uh, That's my main thing I want to say to you today. When God says He will, He will. Now, trust is hard for wounded and broken humans, right? We've been wounded, and so this causes us not to trust people. Uh, We are broken, and that causes us not to trust people. Uh, Most of our interactions with people reveal their inconsistencies, right? 
People are just not consistent. People are flawed. Uh, even when they attempt to do their best, they still throw up errors. And so when there's inconsistency, it leads to suspicion. And when there's suspicion, there's lack of trust. Uh, we have learned over and over by experience not to trust, not to trust people specifically. Uh, betrayal. Who hasn't been betrayed? Who hasn't been betrayed maybe multiple times? Uh, or um, you're, uh, somebody else's limits sometimes are the problem. I know that, that sometimes uh, as a pastor, I feel like my limits uh, put me in a place where uh, I lose uh, some credibility and trust with people because I can't do everything that they want me to do. And so sometimes it's not just sin, but it's just people's limits and that causes us not to trust. Or humans are just clumsy and this causes us not to trust. I don't mean just physically clumsy, just clumsy in the way they interact because of the brokenness, the way sin infects us. Um, so as human beings, we have inconsistencies and so we learn not to fully trust people. And then you add on top of that, some people have gone through abuse and various kinds of mistreatment, which breaks down our ability to trust. So we look at the broken world and we look at our hearts, we look at our broken hearts and we look at our broken relationships. And basically we subtly learn over and over and over again. We're trained to learn not to trust anybody but ourselves. And we have learned by experience that when we put our confidence in people and put our trust in people, uh, it breaks down. And so there's disappointments and discouragements and unanswered prayers. And so what, some of this trust starts to break down in the way that we relate to God. Here's why. Because how you relate is how you relate. That's my counselor, my mentor always says that. How you relate is how you relate. So how you have learned to relate to others is often sometimes how you learn to relate to God. And if you have learned to relate to others with a lot of distrust, you could easily be put in a position where you distrust God. It's kind of like I had um, this dog that died in this last year, but when we first got her, a uh, lady had come from an abusive home. So when we first got her, she was so timid. I mean, I would like reach up to scratch my head and she would, uh, you know, cower because she thought she was going to get hit. And um, it took time for her to learn to trust us, that we were there to take care of her and that we loved her and that we were going to, you know, pet her and feed her and support her. And through that time, she did learn to trust us. And she did uh, grow to be a dog that became uh, a very core part of our family, a beautiful part of our family. Uh, but she had to learn to trust again. And I think for us, as we think about relating to God, we have to learn to trust again. And we can put our confidence in God in a different way than we put our confidence in other people. When God says He will do something, He is going to do it. When God says He will, He will. And God asks us to trust Him. This is the primary thing. Like when we think about what faith is, at the end of the day, faith is really about trust. And God is asking us to trust Him. Well, Abraham is coming off uh, a lot of things that are disorienting to him. Uh, he had just uh, gone to rescue Lot, his nephew, and it was a success. God delivered 
uh, things into his hands. And so Abram learned some trust in God there that God was going to protect him and take care of him. Uh, also, God sent him uh, this priest we looked at last week, Melchizedek, who gives him this blessing, uh, saying that God is with him. Uh, Abram uh, also, in the last section, turned down riches from the great king of Sodom because he didn't want to uh, be influenced by the world in that way because he fully trusted that God would be his provider and he didn't want to take you know, the spoils of war. Um, but... Uh, Abram is still discouraged, and what he's discouraged by is God's timetable. Because God has said, I am going to give you a son, and from that son will come many sons, and from those sons will come the great nation of Israel, and from the great nation of Israel will come the son who will save the world. And so Abram has this promise from God, but year after year keeps going by and he still doesn't have a child. And if you remember him and Sarai, his wife, they were barren. They weren't able to have children. So when God gives this promise, it's going to take a miracle for them to be able to have children. But God's not working on Abram's timetable. God is working way too slow. And so he's beginning to waver in his trust of God because he thinks God should give this to me now. God should do it on my timetable, but... We all know that's not how uh, the Lord works. Um, so Abram's discouraged by God's timetable. He's discouraged by suffering in the events of his life. And he's discouraged by this deep wound he has of being childless. This is a wound he carried all the way back before he knew the true and living God, him and his wife. And now the promise is that he's going to have a son and year after year goes by. And that wound is festering because he, he's waiting for God to deliver on the promise. And it's not happening quick enough. So this is kind of where we pick up uh, the story uh, right after the uh, rescue of Lot, Melchizedek, the offering uh, from the king of Sodom for worldly goods that he turned down. And then it says this, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So God comes to him in some kind of a vision. Now, we don't know exactly what this is, but sometimes God appears to people in, in visions and gives uh, revelation, and this is what happens here. But this is a specific thing that, that God says to Abram that actually also applies to every one of us who are children of Abraham as well, children of the faith. He says this, fear not. Now, it, fear not is probably the most common command in the Bible. Uh, the, it's been said before that there's 366 times in the Bible where some version of fear not is, you know, commanded of us. And it's, you know, so there's enough for uh, one for every day of the year, 366, and plus leap year. So there's plenty of this command to fear not. And what he's telling Abram is you don't have to fear. Abram is afraid of retaliation from the rescue of his nephew. He's afraid that he's not going to have everything he needs because he just turned down the goods from Sodom. He is afraid. And many of us are afraid. Uh, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but fear is often the thing beneath our behaviors that causes bad behaviors. And oftentimes we do evil things, not just because we want to be evil, but because we're afraid and we're trying to self-protect. And so God comes to him to, with this word and says, fear not. Now, what do you fear? Do you fear the future? Do you fear something that's in the future? Something that is unknown? 
Uh, do you fear something financial? You're nervous about money and will you have enough and will God take care of you? Uh, maybe you have some fear around your career. Maybe you're afraid of death and you know it's coming. Uh, maybe you have fear of failure or fear of embarrassment or fear of being exposed in some kind of way that will, you know, then it'll prove that, yes, you, you weren't really the person that you would hope people would see you as. Whatever it is, fear is real. And fear is something that is an effect of the fall. And it's also a life-lived experience. We learn to fear because we learn to distrust through all the brokenness that we go through. And what God wants us to do is he's, He wants us to not fear, but trust Him. To trust Him with our lives, with our future, with our finances, with our relationships. To not live in fear, but instead trust Him. So He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I'm, I'm actually the one, I have a shield around you. I'm actually the one protecting you. You think you're the one figuring out your life and making it, but I'm the one with the shield around you. When you think about just how fragile human life is, our human lives are, and to think about what could happen to us and what, to think about how God protects us. He has a shield around us. He's protecting us from all these things that, that we're afraid of. And the other thing is we have to trust him that whatever he allows behind the shield is the best possible thing. And so we have to trust that God is our shield. God is the one protecting us from uh, the fear of the future and the evil that's in the world and the evil, all of these things that, are, that we're terrified about. Uh, he, he wants us to Look to him as a shield, knowing that we're protected. Then he says this to Abram, your reward shall be very great. I'm going to deliver on my promise, Abram. I've told you from the beginning I'm going to deliver on my promise. You don't need to fear. Now, Abram is having a hard time trusting God right now because of the timetable thing, because things are, he, he expected to have a kid right away and then let's move this thing forward. But year after year keeps going by and God doesn't seem to be delivering on his promise. Uh, but God says, your reward's going to be very great. It's still going to be the same thing. So listen to Abraham's, repl Abraham's reply. He expresses his doubt. Now here's something interesting. This whole chapter is about trust and faith in God, who is the one who keeps his promises. But what we have to see is that doubt is always there. In fact, doubt is the flip side of faith. There, you can't really have faith without doubt. Uh, faith is putting our hope in the things that are unseen. And so because they're unseen, there's an element of doubt always creeping, always that is part of it. And so here, here we have the man of faith, Abraham, who has uprooted his life to follow God and watch God's provision in his life and receives even this promise, this word from God, I'm your shield, your reward is going to be very great. And he's still filled with doubt. Look what he says. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer Damascus. We don't really know who this guy is, but apparently he was one of his top servants and he didn't have a son. So he's thinking, okay, I'll just leave it to Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my house shall be my heir. His doubt now is coming to frustration with God. And he's saying, you're not 
giving me what you said you were going to give me. But what he needs to press into is this, that when God says he will, he will. And, but he'll do it on his own timing, he'll do it in his own way, and he'll do it often in ways that are unexpected. Uh, what happens is, is we get a vision for God fulfilling his promises for us, and we go, it's going to be like this. And then we get disoriented when it doesn't play out the way we imagined it would be in our minds. Well, that's what's happening here with Abram. He thought the situation was going to be much different. So listen to this. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So Abram is complaining. He is whining to God. You're, you're not fulfilling your promise. I can't trust you. And God gets pretty firm with him here. He's, he says, this man is not going to be your heir. You will have a son. This is what I've told you. You're going to have a son who's going to have a son, who's going to have a son, who's going to bring about the nation, who will bring about the son. And Abram had believed that, but he's doubting. He's wavering. He's just like us. Uh, how many times have we believed God and trusted God, and the next thing that we find ourselves pulling back and doubting? We believe God and we trust in God, and then we find ourselves over here doing things that we know he does not approve of. Well, this is the same struggle Abraham is going through. He's a normal person just like us, and God gives him a clear word. Uh, your son is going to be your heir. You're going to have a son. My promises will be fulfilled. All right, so after this word from God, doubt from Abraham, reaffirmation of the word from God. Next comes... Uh, maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible. In fact, many people would argue that it is the most important verse in the Bible because of the way that it unfolds all the doctrines of Christ in the New Testament. Um, so the scene is, God has reaffirmed the promise. Now listen to this, verse, uh, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and the Lord counted that belief in him as righteousness. Okay? So we've already seen that Abraham is not righteous in the sense of like perfection. He, he, he's, a, he's a man of faith. He's a man who's looking to God. He's a man of following God, but he is certainly not uh, a righteous man in the sense of uh, the scriptures, the way the scriptures think about a righteous man. A righteous man is somebody who lives a godly life, uh, lives in conformity to God's law. They enjoy God's favor. Now there's a sense where he's doing that, but then there's a sense where he's inconsistent as well. And so he, right here it says he believed the Lord. He believed in Yahweh, the true God, and it counted him to him as righteousness. So listen, he didn't just believe in the Lord. He'd already done that. He'd already left his home. But here it says he believed the Lord. And there's a difference. Believing in him, that's certainly essential, but believing him, believing his word, that what he says is true, and that anytime there's a disagreement between us and him, that we're the ones who's wrong. He believed the Lord. He believed the person of the Lord. He believed the word of the Lord. He believed the promises of the Lord. And God took that faith, that belief, and he counted it 
to Abram is righteousness. In other words, Abram's not a perfectly righteous person, but God accounts it to him as if he were. It, it, one way to look at it is, you know, Abram has, has is a, done, he's had faith and everything, but he's also flawed. Imagine it as God putting a million dollars of credit or a billion dollars of credit into his bank account. Um, and he is perfectly set now. So to account, to, to count somebody righteous, um, is to think of them as righteous. So because of his faith in the promise, and specifically the promise of the Savior who is coming, who would be his great-great-great-great-grandchild, uh, because of his faith in that promise, God counts that to him as righteousness, thinks of Abram as righteous, treats Abram as if he was righteous, reckons Abram as if he was righteous, imputes to Abram, you are righteous, regards Abram as righteous. Why? Because Abram was righteous? No, because Abram put his faith in the one who is righteous, God. God is right and true in all of his ways. And he said, look, trust me, put your faith in me. This is what we call the doctrine of justification by faith alone. To be justified, justification, is to get a right standing with God, to be forgiven and to be set up right. But, so it's to be forgiven, but also added righteousness. It's to be forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross, but also all of his perfect obedience is accounted to you as if you did it. So, uh, you know, um, back in the day, there was a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he used to say, uh, about 50, 60 years ago, when you get uh, to the gates of heaven and God asks you, why should I let you in? What will you say? And he gives all these scenarios. People will say, well, I'm a, I've been a good person. I've been nice to my family. I've given to charities. I've, I've been a good employee. I've done whatever. They, they list their things off and God would say, no, you cannot come in. When they list their record, they, he says, no, you cannot come in. The only right answer to that uh, question, why should I let you into my heaven, is because I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that belongs to Him belongs to me. And all of my sin is now gone. I am justified, I am right with God by faith and faith alone. This is the core doctrine of Christianity. And this is why this might be the most important verse in the Bible. This verse is repeated four times in the New Testament, in the book of Romans a couple of times, in the book of Galatians, and in the book of James. And it's alluded to dozens of times in various different ways. The main doctrine that the Apostle Paul is arguing for in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that we're right with God by trusting God, not by doing things for God. That God accounts us as righteous. He does not... Uh, add up everything and says, ah, you're good, outweighs your bad, and you're in. This is the best news in the world, that you put your faith in Him, in His Word, and that is accounted to you as if you lived a perfect life, and all of your sins are completely washed away. John Calvin said this doctrine that is taught right here in this verse is salvation's hinge. So if you think of a door, you know, if, if Jesus is the door, the hinge that opens the door is faith, trust in God. This is what makes you right with God, just trusting Him. Uh, the 
uh, great reformer Martin Luther said, this doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article or doctrine on which the church stands or falls. In other words, if you remove justification by faith alone, you don't have a church anymore. You don't have a gospel anymore. You don't have good news. It is not good news for me to tell you, you need to earn your salvation. What is good news is saying, look, you can't do it, but the good news is somebody did. And all you have to do is trust them. Trust him. So this is a powerful, powerful doctrine. The Apostle Paul says this specifically about Abraham and the doctrine of justification by faith. In Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So listen to this. Uh, he says, the one who works will not be justified. If you try to work for your salvation, you will not be saved. Your work is not good enough. Your abilities are not good enough. Your smarts are not good enough. You need somebody who is good enough. And that person says, I do it all. You just trust me, this, which is what faith is. He says, so the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies. Well, who does he justify? The ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Uh, he also talks about with Abraham later in the chapter, here in Romans chapter 4, he says this, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That's a very interesting phrase. When we just saw that he, he seems to be wavering, but whatever this wavering is, it's not a loss of faith. He's just wrestling. He's wrestling with it. So no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He believed that God was able to do what he promised. So he believed in God, but he also believed God. He believed God's word. And this is what made him right with God. And the great news of the gospel is this, that what makes you right with God is your trust in him. And it doesn't even have to be a perfect trust as we see with Abram here. Now, if that were not clear enough, God does something amazing next. Something so powerful and clear that it illustrates the gospel in Genesis 15, pointing us forward to the cross and resurrection of Christ. Listen to this. <clears throat> Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess God's grace. But he said, O oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now he just was counted as righteous for believing. And now he's saying, how will I know? In other words, can we have some kind of covenant, some kind of contract? Now, of course, in most covenants and most contracts, you know, you got two parties and it's bilateral. Okay, each party agrees to certain things, signs on the dotted line, whatever it is, and now you have a record of it, it's bilateral. But here, 
we're going to see a unilateral covenant. In other words, God does it by himself. The way they used to do it back then uh, is described here in the next few verses. Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these and cut them in half and laid each over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Right away when God says this, Abram knows what's going on because in this culture, this is how you would make a contract or a covenant. Specifically when you did big, big business deals or something like that, what you would do is you would take from your livestock animals and you would take those animals and you would cut them in half. And then you would set the parts of the animals to either side and each of the parties would walk through the animals together saying, if I break this covenant, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. And they would even make a gesture of being cut in half as they walk through it. So they would say, may I be cut off, may I be cut broken in half if I don't keep my end of the bargain, if I don't keep my end of the deal, okay? Now, that's usually how it works. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So Abram falls asleep, and there's this great darkness that comes. The presence of the Lord is going to come in a powerful way, but God also has to reveal some things to Abram that he's not going to want to hear, specifically because he wants this process to happen now. But listen to what God says. Then the Lord said to Abram, verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be soldiers, sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So in other words, this family is coming, this nation is coming, but there's going to be a parenthesis. It's not going to be smooth sailing. There's coming a time when the people that will be your family will be brought into slavery. We know that that's Egypt now. We know this story from the book of Exodus. They're going to be brought into slavery and they're going to build up there. But I'm going to build my people up there and then I'm going to deliver them out of there. And they're going to leave with great wealth and possessions to come back into the land. So he reveals this ominous, dark prophecy of what will happen later with Abram's family. Um, and Abram can feel the weight of it because it's not what he hoped and expected. That's not the way he would plan this whole thing out. But God had a plan to reveal his glory to the world through Egypt and through his people being in Egypt. And God had a plan also to strengthen his people and build them up in Egypt and gather wealth so that they could become the nation that they needed to become. God's plan is sometimes much longer than our plans. God's plan is, is, goes in different directions. But this is why we must trust Him, because He knows what is best. We would never plan it the way that He did. But He's the God of wisdom and knowledge, and we're imperfect. So, uh, He says to Abram, verse 15, 15, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now listen, here it is. On that day, the Lord made a covenant or an agreement or a contract or a promise with Abraham saying, to your offspring I give this land. This land is going to be to your offspring. It's just going to be a long and winding road until you take the entirety of the land. 
Okay. <clears throat> when the sun had gone down, verse 17, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So listen, when the sun goes down, he, this prophecy has come. Abram is there in some kind of vision or trance. We don't really know. But suddenly it says that there is uh, a smoking fire pot and a, a flaming torch. Now, at several places in the Bible, God is revealed uh, in this way. He is a fire. He, he is a light. He is the light of the world. Um, also, the, the fire pot is a picture of a refining fire that you would refine and make tools in, in as well. And the, what would happen is you would heat up uh, the, the silver or whatever it might be, and the impurities would rise to the top and you would scrape them off. So what God is saying here is that I am the purifier. But he's also saying I am the light. I am the light of the world. And what happens here is that God gives in the, with this symbolic this symbol of this, this, this fire and this smoke, God shows the symbol passing between the animals. You know what God is saying? I'm going to keep my end of the bargain and I'm going to do it by myself. And you, even the places where you broke the covenant, where you were not trustworthy, Abram, I, that requires death. Like, like it says, when you pass through, you, it requires my death if I don't keep this covenant. Well, he says this, I'm going to keep my part of the bargain, but where you have not kept your part of the bargain, I'm going to die for that. I'm going to be judged for that. I'm going to take it all in upon myself. He reveals the gospel, that God saves us by himself, that God saves us by his own sacrifice. Think of, think of it all. Think of it. He went to death. Jesus went to death for our side of breaking the covenant. He kept his end of the covenant, but we did not break ours. He was cut off so that we might be brought in. And you know, there was this ominous darkness that came. Well, what happened at the cross? There was a great darkness that came when Jesus died upon the cross. Because all the sins and all the brokenness of the world were being laid upon Him at this time. And He was doing it all by Himself. And He hung on the cross and He said, It is finished. Just like this, His holiness, represented by the smoke and the fire, passed through the animals, so the Holy One passed through this world. And He passed through this world and did everything is required for us. And what he is asking of us is our trust. He wants you to trust him. When God says he will, he will. Sometimes people are like, what does God want from me? He wants your trust. Because he knows that when you trust him, that is the best thing for you and for the world and for everybody around you that trusting Him is really the goal of our lives, and trusting Him is what makes us right with Him. When God says He will, He will. So you can trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, you continually reveal your trustworthiness. You continually reveal your grace in coming to us. You, even in the midst of Abram's doubts, in the midst of our doubts, you still give us promises and blessings. 
Thank you, God, that you're a God. Yes, you're a God of holiness and power represented by the fire. Such holiness that it would make us fall on our faces if we saw you. And yet, you're a God of compassion and mercy. There's no one like you, the lion and the lamb. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace.